Good morning, everybody. Uh, We got a lot to cover today, so we're just going to jump right into it. If you have been uh, tracking with us the last several weeks now, you know that there's a recurring theme in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, the Gospel of Matthew is a biography of the life of Jesus, and the recurring theme for the last several weeks has been Jesus, Jesus increasingly making the religious ruling class angry with him. And last week, in response to their sort of building up of anger, we entered a a sort of the empire strikes back section of scripture where the religious ruling class strikes back at Jesus. And the way they do that is this, they set three traps for him. And those three traps come in the form of three questions. Now these questions, again, are designed by some of the most brilliant people of the day. These people are religious scholars. They know the Bible inside and out, and they've taken time to reflect on and think upon types of questions that could trap Jesus. So you can imagine, like, Jesus, there's tons of people, and he's gonna be put on the spot out of nowhere. Here's a question that is designed to trap you in such a way that we could bring a formal charge against you because of your words. And Jesus is kind of in these situation situations, one, two, three, three of them come in a row. Last week, we looked at one. This week, we'll recover two, we'll look at two, and then look how Jesus responds to all three of those questions um, with a question of his own. So before we enter the two new questions, the two new test questions, brief review of last week, and in case you missed it, or just to kind of review so we can be prepared for what we have today. So if you remember the first question, was asked to him by some disciples of the Pharisees. And they approach Jesus and they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now again, they're not asking, is it lawful in the, is it legal sense? They're saying, is it right before God to be paying taxes, to be giving tribute to Caesar? And the question is designed so that Jesus is sort of forced into a yes or no answer. And if he answers, no, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar, then he's on the line for treason and they could bring a formal charge against him. You you are committing treason against Caesar, against the Roman Empire. If you answer no, don't pay, if you answer yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then in the, the eyes of the normal person, sort of on the street level, Jesus will essentially be compromising and selling out in order to save his own neck. Because it's like, no, there's no way the Messiah would have us paying tribute to a pagan king named Caesar. We're in Israel. This is the promised land. God gave this to us. And so it's either commit treason or in the eyes of the people appear to be saving your own neck by acting on words of compromise or kind of selling out. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, you know, there's this tax you're talking about that you have to pay to Caesar, and we all know that there's a certain coin you use to pay that tax called the tribute coin. Can someone bring me one of these tribute coins? And already Jesus is, is kind of reversing things on them because in asking one of them to bring him a coin for his illustration, he is demonstrating to the masses that the very people asking him the question are the ones that carry on them the coin that pays that tax. He's like, I don't have it. And furthermore, we looked at last week that the coin itself has blasphemous inscriptions. The coin used to pay that tax is called the tribute penny made of silver. And on the left, you see a picture of Caesar. It says his name, this one in particular is Tiberius, and it has the word divifilius in Latin, which is son of God. On the right, you have another image and the words reading from left to right, maxim pontiff, so high priest. 
So on this coin is the words, son of God and high priest and an image of Caesar. So who's, ca- who, who's carrying the blasphemous coin? I don't have one, you guys do. Oh, thank, thanks, this will help my illustration. Thank you for bringing it here. And then Jesus says, whose image is on the coin? And of course, it's Caesar's image. And then Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what is God. And we took sort of a deep dive into a theology of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because Jesus essentially was saying, what he essentially was saying was that Caesar's image is on this coin, so, so pay the tax. But you need to be first and foremost concerned with the fact that you, as an individual, are made in the image of God. Therefore, give yourself unto him. Give to him your entire being. Give to him your heart. And so what he was doing was saying, you're coming at me pretending like you care about this tax. All the while, you don't even give God your heart. You don't even give him your entire being. So this isn't about taxes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. His image is on the coin. God's image is upon you. Give yourself to God. And so if you were here, you remember the people respond. It's like they all marveled and they went home. It's like, no, great answer, man. I got anything to say to that. So that was test one, question number one. <clears throat> test number two comes to him from the Sadducees. I'm going to read to you the, whole, the kind of whole back and forth, and then we're going to go back and kind of break it down piece by piece because it's actually quite confusing. Like, follow along, pay attention, and, and it's, it's, it's very difficult to see the line of argumentation. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, already kind of strange. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, after them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So, if you're honest with yourself, that, that was a little hard to follow. So the Sadducees come, so there's this woman who's married to a guy, he dies, and then the brother has to marry her, and then uh, this happens seven times, and they all die, and then Jesus is like, you don't understand, man, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everyone marveled. It's like, well, what, what is even, like, what's going on? Okay, there's layers to this, there's layers. Let's go back to the beginning of the encounter. The the same day, Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection, and they asked him, teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What they were referring to is something called a leveret marriage. The leveret marriage is something that occurred in the ancient Near Eastern world and the biblical world. And by the way, it continues today in many cultures. And essentially, 
What many cultures did, including the world that the, the biblical authors lived in, was they, they saw a situation in which there is a woman whose husband dies. And that would put the woman in, a, in an extremely vulnerable situation. In the ancient Near Eastern world, this woman doesn't have a mean to provide and to protect herself, and there's all kinds of people trying to take advantage of that. So if she didn't have a support structure, maybe family that could help provide and protect, she would be in an ins- 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 uh, a situation of, of desperation, of destitution. And so many of the times these women would be forced into situations where they beg, and many times there's actually occurrence of this in the scripture where they, they take up a life of prostitution in order to just survive. So on top of not having provision and not, on top of not having care, you were also in a world where there's many predators that would be out to get you. You see something like this take place in the book of Ruth as well. So there was a mechanism in the Bible and in many cultures of the ancient Near Eastern world, and like I said, it still exists in, in some cultures today, where the surviving brother would marry that woman and he would protect and provide for her, and in addition to that, the first child born to them would be raised in the name of the deceased husband. So to honor the deceased husband, carry on his name while his wife begins a new life and is able to start over. So for modern people, super weird and it's bizarre, it's something that's very difficult for us to understand, but a a kind of normal practice in, in the eyes of many people in the biblical world. Now, the point is this, The Sadducees don't care about leveret marriage. They don't care about that particular situation. They're going to use this to try and trap Jesus. And there's all kinds of other information you could read about this type of marriage in Deuteronomy 25. There's like a process for like if the man doesn't fulfill his duty and honor the woman that the woman goes in public and she, she spits on a shoe and she slaps it and slaps him and it's all kinds of like this big public thing if you are not willing to care for your brother's widow type of thing. So you read about that if you'd like in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But the Pharisees don't care about any of that. They don't care about that. They're bringing up this hypothetical situation. And then they make this hypothetical situation even grander. Now there were seven brothers among them. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So you've taken this situation and now made it like huge seven times bigger. And there's likely not a, they likely don't have in mind a real historical example of this, although in the intertestamental period, the intertestamental period is the time between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, there's a writing called the Book of Tobit that has a similar situation. Now, whether or not the the Sadducees have that in mind is besides the point. Like, again, they're trying to, to create a situation to trap Jesus. And they're like, well, who's, who's wife? is she in the resurrection, the age to come, in heaven, who is she married to? Now, it's a piece of historical information that you have to understand to make sense of this passage. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in an afterlife, they don't believe in heaven. And we know this from the historical information from Josephus, but also, also Matthew clues us into this at the beginning of the passage. So they don't believe this situation can even happen. They deny the resurrection, the afterlife, the age to come, heaven. They don't even believe in it. 
So they've taken this situation, blown it up, and, and are using it to try and get Jesus. There's some other things about the Sadducees you need to know. The Sadducees are the most powerful of the religious ruling class. You have the Pharisees, you have Sadducees, you have some other the groups, but the Sadducees kind of dominate the temple establishment, the temple institution, and the priesthood. They have the power. The Pharisees have the ear of the people. The common person in, in Israel typically would side with the Pharisees, and not with the Sadducees, but the Sadducees had all the power. As, as opposite of the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the afterlife, they believed in the resurrection, they believed in an age to come where there will be rewards for faithfulness to God. And so Jesus, in that sense, is similar to the Pharisees. He held similar doctrine. He believes in a resurrection, he believes in, in, a, in a heaven and an afterlife. The Sadducees don't, and they have all the power. The other piece of information you need to know is the Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative and the word of God. So if you were to pick up a Bible today and you'd kind of get your hand just holding the Old Testament and not the New Testament, you would have more than five books. Jesus and the Pharisees held to all the books that are in your Bible. The Sadducees said only the first five are the word of God. The first five are the law of Moses, sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you have all of those sort of pieces of information, and now you have this question kind of being thrown at Jesus. Now, how how is the trap sort of working? What's the strategy? The strategy is to create a question in which the second you try to answer it, you are met with all kinds of unsolvable, ridiculous questions and answers. So the Sadducees are saying, you you wanna know how ridiculous the belief in a heaven and an afterlife is? There's a woman, and she followed what was in the law of Moses, and now she's married to seven people. Who's, who's, Who's she married to in heaven? And it's sort of like, don't you see how ridiculous This is, the second you start talking about an afterlife is the second you introduce a host of problems that are unsolvable, inconceivable, and ridiculous. Now, there'd be all kinds of ways people would probably try to answer this, and maybe some of you are even tempted. Oh, well, she's married to the first guy. She's married to the last one. That was the last one she made a covenant. Oh, no, the the one she actually loved, because she really didn't even like the second guy and the third guy. All these different types of solutions. But how does Jesus respond to this? But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now remember who he's talking to. This is the religious ruling class, the experts of the Bible. They they have the priesthood. Like these are the people who you expect would, by definition, these are the people who know the Bible better than anybody and Jesus is like, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God, you need to go back to Sunday school and learn the fundamentals, learn the basics. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now still, it's kind of confusing for us because you're like, how are they astonished by the 
this teaching, like he says, well, people will be like angels in the afterlife, and then he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, it's, it's still kind of mysterious. Okay, so first, Jesus deals with the issue at the heart of the question. Who is this woman going to be married to? He says, don't you understand that in the resurrection, in heaven, in the age to come, we're not going to exist as we exist now. People won't be given and taken in marriage because you're gonna be like the angels. Now, as there's this understanding in the first century world that angels, and for good biblical reason, there's no account for it, that angels aren't like humans in that they don't marry or reproduce or have children. So on earth, when a couple loves each other, uh, they get married, and then uh, children come out of the love that exists between that man and the woman, and the ideal environment for children to be brought up in is this covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. So marriage, by definition, on earth, exists as an institution that creates children, okay? And what Jesus is saying is, in the resurrection, humans, now this is important, humans, it's not, he's not saying humans become angels, or like when you die, you become an angel. He's saying that humans in the resurrection will be similar to angels in the regard, in the situation that they're no longer having children. And you have to be careful here, because what happens is, is people want to then map out all kinds of ideas about what love and romance and uh, things about marriage and people who you love, what's that gonna look like in heaven from like one small verse. And that's fun to speculate on, but the main point Jesus is saying is that however, if, if you're married, however you relate to your wife in marriage or your husband in marriage, that the institution of marriage is fundamentally changed to such a degree that how you relate to that person in heaven will be fundamentally different. It just will. And you could, I mean, for a number of, a number of reasons, like the idea of, children not being made, reproduction, and actually then the, the acts of reproduction, where what are the implications of that? And then certainly all kinds of things that you probably used to argue about or fight about, that's not existing in heaven, so of course your relationship is gonna be fundamentally different. Now what people hap- happens here is they get scared, like the Bible teaches that, you know, I won't have a wife in heaven or my husband, like w- will I be able to love them? And look, Jesus' main point is that the category of marriage as it exists on earth cannot just immediately be mapped out upon the heavenly reality. That's his point. You can't take the category and institution of earthly marriage and transfer it over in the exact same sense. Now me personally, um, and the scriptures aren't crystal clear on this, but um, I am not concerned about how I will relate to my wife in, in heaven. Because I, I believe that whatever earthly good is established here in our domain on earth um, by God is a shadow of the ultimate reality of that goodness in heaven. So whatever love I experience, whatever relationship I have with my wife here on earth, that is a shadow of the reality of what's to come. I know at minimum, it will be fundamentally different. How I relate to my wife isn't gonna be imported there in the exact same manner. But I don't have a concern that somehow like that special love won't exist because I am experiencing a fading, fleeting, broken version 
of what actually looks like in, fallen, in the fallen state. So Jesus' main point, though, is just, you guys don't get it. You guys don't get it. You don't just take the earthly institution of marriage and take that category and map it upon the heaven reality like nothing's going to change. Everything's going to change. But you guys, you don't know the scripture nor the power of God. And again, that's so, that's so powerful. This is the best of the best. And you're having the teacher from Galilee come down to Jerusalem and tell the religious scholars, you should sign up for Awanas. Learn some Bible verses, bro. <laughs> Like, that's what he's doing. Okay. Now, that's the answer to their question. So Jesus gets to the heart of their question, but then he gets to the heart of the issue. Because remember, they don't even believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in heaven. So then Jesus says in verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So he answers the heart of their question and then he gets to the heart of the issue. But you guys don't understand about the resurrection. Don't you know God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's the God of the living. Now, Jesus here is quoting from the Bible. He's quoting Exodus chapter three, verse six. Now, Exodus, what, what uh, order of the books of the Bible? Even if you can't get to like, can't say all the books of the Old Testament or anything, you, maybe you can get to Genesis, Exodus, then the greatest, Leviticus. Okay. Okay. So remember what we said about the Sadducees. The Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. So Jesus doesn't quote from Ezra, a book that they don't hold to be the word of God or authoritative. He quotes from their like, authoritative source material type of thing. He says, don't you know it says in Exodus, which they accept as the inspired word of God and binding upon them, God says of himself that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now what is Jesus doing there? He's drawing attention to the verb. I am this first person verb. I am the God of Abraham. And he's pointing out the fact that God's claim upon himself is that he currently is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Exodus chapter three, Abraham wasn't alive anymore. Abraham died back in Genesis. Isaac died in Genesis, Jacob died in Genesis. Now we're in Exodus. Nevertheless, God still says, I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not saying, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but then they died. He's saying, I'm presently, ongoing, their God. And the implication by Jesus is that, by God saying he currently is, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't cease to exist, that they're in some sense still living. And then he says, don't you know God is the God of the living? Because what kind of title would it be to say God is the God of the dead? You say, no, God is the God of the living. Not, not the dead, the God of the living. Now there's another angle to this too. And it's a little bit more complicated, but it's this idea that God makes covenants with his people and he made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And there's all these promises that, that, are, that are made. And it's like, God has so bound himself 
in covenant to his people that as, as long as God is, is living, which he is eternal and he will go on, then in some sense, people must go on because his love and his covenant with them necessitates that they continue on being. And you sort of see kind of mysterious glimpses of this. Like, um, if you're familiar with the story of Moses, Moses does all these great things. He's like, he's a good dude. He's great, okay? It's like, putting up with these rebellious people, pleading on their behalf. And then Moses gets his people like all the way to the promised land. And then he dies. And it's like Moses didn't get into the promised land. And it's almost like, man, if Moses ain't get to the promised land, you ain't getting to heaven <laughs> type of thing. It's very heavy. But if you remember from our time through Matthew, actually Moses does get to the promised land. Because Moses just didn't die and cease to exist. And then later in the book of Matthew, there's, there's a transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah appear before Jesus. And the disciples see and behold this. And it doesn't spell it out, but the careful observant reader is going, wait a second. If Moses is here at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses is stepping foot in Israel. Israel is the promised land. Moses put his feet on the ground of the promised land, but just not in his original first life. But in the afterlife, in the resurrection, in the age to come, he does. So there's this sense in which the promises of God are so true and so powerful, and he will never break his covenant and his faithfulness with his people that the evil and injustice and unfulfilled promises still have yet to occur. And so in some sense, of course they have to be ongoing. Now, that's a complex argument, but this is how the people respond. Verse 33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So test number one, who, tell, talk to us about taxes, Jesus. Jesus is like, get out of here, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Test number two, Sadducees come. We... we created this super hard hypothetical situation to stump you. You guys don't even know the Bible. Go to Sunday school, go to Awana, start learning some Bible verse, then come talk to me. Okay, test number three. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So now they send a lawyer. So you're gonna get like a, a scholar of religious law times 10. This, this is like, they're gonna send their best. They're gonna send the lawyer, man. What's the greatest commandment? And here's how this trap is set. What, however Jesus responds, what is the greatest commandment? The lawyer is going to somehow use that to say, oh, by saying that, you dismiss or subvert or devalue this other command. So whatever you say, it's not gonna be, it's one of those situations, no matter what you say, it's not gonna be good enough and it's gonna be used against you. So however Jesus responds, he's gonna be in trouble. Now, this original question isn't that controversial because in the law of Moses, there are 613 laws, commands, statutes, ordinances, there's all kinds of them. And so people in Jesus' day would often 
like talk about what are the weightier commands and what are the lighter commands. And they weren't trying to say what commands do we not follow or try to get out of. They were just clear, they were looking at the law of God and saying some things are clearly heavier than the others. So for instance, do not murder is greater than stealing cookies from the cookie jar type of thing. One's heavier and one's lighter. So they talk about the weightier matters of the law and the lighter things of the law. And so a natural question out of that would be, well, which is the heaviest? What's the heaviest of God's law? What's the most important? What's the greatest commandment? Now, what most people were probably thinking about Jesus in that moment was that something along the lines of Jesus is going to give one of the Ten Commandments because there's 613 commands, but then there's the Big Ten. And in a sense, the Big Ten compressed the 613. So you have 613 laws in the law of Moses, and what the Ten Commandments does <clears throat> is it <clears throat> excuse me, compresses them into 10. And in the 10, you have some commands that are directed towards God and some that are directed towards people. So there's a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. So for instance, in the vertical dimension, you have no other gods before me. Do not make idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And then in the, the, the horizontal dimension, you have primarily... Um, commands directed towards other people, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. And so what the Ten Commandments do is they do this brilliant thing where they sort of compress 613 laws and then have them based upon things that are towards God and towards other. Don't do this towards God and don't do this towards others. Many people see the, the middle command, honor your mother and father, as the, it's the middle because it does both. It's honoring something in the vertical, not necessarily God, but mother and father. And so it's the gap between commands towards God and commands towards others. But nevertheless, it's like a compression. And so people in Jesus' day would probably be thinking, Jesus is probably going to say, greatest command, don't murder. That's horrible because people are made in the image of God, so don't murder. Or maybe, because some people talked about this, they would say the greatest commandment is to honor your mother and father. Could be right. Sounds good to me. Um, so it's like, they would say, um, because it bridges the gap between the vertical and the horizontal, that's where the stress is at. And if you honor your mother and father, then you're going to be good at honoring the Lord and honoring other people. And some people, of course, would say the first commandment's the greatest. But likely what people are thinking is that Jesus is going to say something from the Big Ten. Now, how does Jesus respond? For he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, there's a, I'm interesting here. How many commands does Jesus give in response? They ask him one, Right? The question was, what's the great command? And Jesus gives them two. He gives them two. Now the first response, Jesus says to love God with all your heart. That one might have been expected because Jesus is taking that from the book of Deuteronomy chapter six. And in Deuteronomy six, uh, four, five, and six, there's a section of scripture called the Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one and you shall love the Lord God with all of your being. And Jews at that time and religious Jews today will recite the Shema at least two times a day. So 
many people would say, okay, that first one might have been the response that Jesus would have given. It's a solid one. I mean, that's like right on. But then Jesus immediately gives a second, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a direct quote from Leviticus 19. So follow this. Jesus asks, what's the greatest command? He doesn't choose one of the Ten Commandments. He chooses the Shema, this, this, I, this verse about there being one God and you should love him. And then he immediately attaches this idea of love towards neighbor to it. Now, the Shema is in the book of Deuteronomy and the love thy neighbor verse is in the book of Leviticus. So they're not, they're not side by side. Like Jesus is taking verses that are a book apart and then bringing them together and saying, that's what matters. I go, hmm. What's, what's, like, why do those two verses come together? Like, what's, what brings them together? They don't appear together, they're books apart. So what's, what's the theme or the word that brings these two seemingly independent verses together as one? It's love. Love of God and love of people. So Jesus does something brilliant here. There's the 10 commandments, which are sort of a compressed version of the 613 commandments. And then what Jesus does is he takes the compressed 10 commandments and compresses them even further into two commands. So you get from 613 to 10 to two. But there's also another movement that he does. Jesus then takes what are primarily commands in, in the negative sense in the Ten Commandments, which is um, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You have honor your mother and honor the Sabbath, but primarily the Ten Commandments are don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then what does he do? He inverts that and he compresses it into two commands, but now they're formed in the positive. Not don't do this, don't do this, it's love God and love your neighbor. 613, 10, 2, and then inverts it It's a positive command, love God and love others. Now, if you grew up in church, like you've heard, yeah, you should love God and love others. That's the greatest command. But the brilliant move of Jesus here, this isn't just like, like Jesus is taking these movements and then bringing it down to just two. And then the first Christians would say that if you do the love God and love others thing, you are fulfilling all of the law. Because in a sense, it's like, uh, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill him. So you don't need the command, don't murder, because love would entail not murdering them. And Jesus compresses all of that and flips it in the positive. And in doing so, Jesus is inviting his followers and you to walk in an entirely different mode of being. So before, it's don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And now Jesus is saying, no, no, you are going to embody this love thing. It's a different mode of being. It's a different pattern to submit yourself to. You are to positively love God and love others. Which is interesting, you know, because, you know, you could tell yourself something like, well, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, you know, I do pretty good. I don't murder anybody. I don't steal or anything like that. But to love, that's a whole nother thing. It's a whole nother thing. 
So Jesus answers the question, and once again, everyone's left amazed, astounded. They're marveling at his words, and then Jesus flips it. He goes, you guys have asked me three questions. My turn. And a new questioner enters into the scene. Jesus is going to ask the question now. And this is the question he asks his hearers. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Yeah, I like it. My turn, you guys. Verse 42, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, this is a straightforward question. Uh, who, do, who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah? And they say, the son of David. And that's true. By definition, the Messiah is the son of David. Because by definition, the Messiah is the rightful heir to the throne of King David. So King David lived a long time ago, and his family line is the line of the king. It's the royal line. So whoever the Messiah is, he's going to come from that line. So by definition, the Messiah, the Christ, is a son of David. They got the right answer. Here's Jesus' follow-up. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now this is another one of those interesting ones like the previous questions where you're going, okay, I, I kind of think I want to say I get it, but it's, it's difficult, it's very difficult. Okay, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees believe that the book of Psalms is inspired by God. Jesus in verse 44 is quoting Psalm 110. So now he's talking to the Pharisees and he's quoting from Psalm 110, which the Pharisees believe is authoritative and the word of God. And Jesus makes this clear with the way he prefaces verse 44. He said, how is it then that David, who wrote Psalm 110, said in the spirit, so they're, they're like agreeing to this. David wrote Psalm 110 and he wrote it in the spirit. This is inspired by God himself, his spirit. And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse, verses one, verse one and two. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, the reason why this is confusing is in English, from the Greek words of the New Testament, we read, the Lord said to my Lord. Anyway, what's, what's going on? So there's this image of King David, and he's looking at his Lord. And then there's a Lord who says to his Lord, sit at my right hand. And you're like, well, what's up with that? It's weird. We're reading the New Testament, which is written in Greek, translated in English. But... The New Testament, written in Greek, verse 44, is a direct quote from Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 is written in Hebrew. So there's like <laughs> some language issues. Hebrew, Greek, English. Sorry, excuse me. Now in Hebrew, verse 44 would say, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. So Yahweh is the covenantal personal name of God in the Hebrew scriptures. The word Adonai is a Hebrew word meaning Lord. So David is talking to his Adonai, his Lord, as Yahweh speaks to the Adonai saying, I'm going to have you sit at my right hand. 
So David then has a figure who he is calling Lord. And the one whom he is calling Lord is the one that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is saying, you're gonna sit at my right hand. So this is the Messiah, okay? But then Jesus says, okay, if the Messiah is the son of David, in other words, the son of David is inferior to David in some sense. In, in, the, in the ancient world, in biblical times, like clearly the son of David isn't going to be better than King David. King David is the archetype that the, the, the son of David is supposed to embody. So if, if the Messiah is just a son of David, who in the world is David calling Lord? And the implication of this is Jesus is saying the Messiah is not just the son of David, but he is the Lord himself. He is the Adonai that is addressed in Psalm 110. So he is not just the son of David. He is the son of God, the Lord, the rightful king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. So now follow all of this. We get three test questions about taxes. Jesus says, whose image is on this? People leave amazed and astounded. Then another test question, ridiculous question, a hypothetical situation. Well, who's, who's the husband she's married to? You guys don't understand the scriptures. Go back to Sunday school. Which law is the greatest? A compressing of the entirety of all the laws in the law of Moses into two, and rather than be negative, they are put in the affirmative, in the positive, to love God and to love others. And after he's dismantled all the questions he says, I have a question for you. Who's the Messiah? If he's just a son of David, you make sense of Psalm 110. Who is Yahweh saying is an Adonai? Who is David referring to as an Adonai, as the Lord? Now, in the ancient context, in the first century world, how does the Jewish audience respond to this? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. <laughs> you, see, you see this, this is brilliant, this is beautiful. This is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And there's, there's like tons of lessons we can pull from this, but just, just like two really, really quick things. One, um, Jesus understands the hostility of his culture. And he understands the different factions in his cultures, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. There were others too. But in this instance, he's encountering the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he knows what they believe. And he uses what they accept as authoritative source material against them. So there's a lesson here in that Jesus understands his culture, he understands the arguments that are made against the truth, and he's able, it, he's able to anticipate those questions and give great answers to those questions. There's a verse in the scriptures that talk about Christians needing to be able to give a ready defense for the hope that they have. It's this idea, it's like, no, I'm gonna understand the times that I live in. I understand the hostility, I understand the questions, and I'm gonna understand the angles at which people are coming from, and I am going to have better answers. I'm going to explain things in a way that the truth is made clear and known. This is something Christians will need to grow in, to be able to understand the times, understand the culture, and to, be give, to give the best answers. 
Now there's another, another probably the most important like lesson of all of this. Jesus does this brilliant move with, with like the ultra compression, love God and love others and then putting it in the positive rather than just don't do this, don't do this. And at this point, many, many modern people, even Christians, uh, make, a, make a terrible mistake here. They, they say something like this. Man, the Old Testament had all these laws. It was really difficult and God was pretty tough. Can you imagine having a test with like 613 questions? Don't do this, don't do that. And you're having to, to tiptoe on everything. And it's like, then... Jesus made it really simple. Love God and love others. I could do that. That's much better. And it's like, you only think that's easier if you presuppose that you're such a loving person. And furthermore, than just presupposing you're such a loving person, that's only easy if you get to import your subjective definition of what love looks like. Because our culture loves to define love as they see it in their own eyes rather than submitting to God's objective standard of what love actually is. And if you're ever curious about what that standard, that objective standard of love looks like, you look to Jesus because he embodies it perfectly. And so you say, how does Jesus treat those who are hurting? How does Jesus treat those who are vulnerable? How does he treat those who are filled with shame? How does he treat his enemies? What does he do for people who hate him? That's the life of Jesus is the objective standard of what love looks like in the Christian sense. So if you think you could do that, oh, that's much easier. No, you don't understand. Look, at the Ten Commandments, way easier. Because truth be told, like you, you should at least get a 70% on the Ten Commandments. 60%. You at least get a D+. Plus. And the teacher feels sorry for you in passing. I haven't murdered, you know, murder people, kill people, you know? If I don't like somebody, I could pass the commandment of do not murder. I didn't kill them. You know? The Lord says do not murder. I didn't murder this guy I didn't like. I passed that commandment. To Great. Now, okay, so it's like you're starting to think you're well of yourself. Do you love the person that you do not like? Now do you pass the test? And then define love as Jesus defines love. Do you love that person like Jesus loved his enemies? It's like a whole nother world. This is what I said. Jesus is inviting you into a new mode of being. Because when you understand that Jesus is saying, now you love as I have loved, and you love God in that manner, and you love the, the horizontal people like that, that's an entirely different framework by which you now interact with every human relationship you come into contact with. To love people as God loves people, that applies to your spouse, to your friends, to your family, to your coworkers, to your enemies, to the person who just cut you off on the freeway. That's a different mode of being. Like, I can no longer exist in the way I used to live. Now I'm called to love God in the vertical and love human beings in the horizontal. And it changes every human relationship you have. It's heavy. It's a different mode of being. You are submitting yourself to a pattern that Jesus lays out and walking in that. And it's way harder than just not killing people. 
is a lot harder. Now, if you really reflect on this, you kind of understand that, yeah, okay, now I get it, it's really hard. Because I'm not even good to some of the people I technically like. Like, that's how rotten I am. And so how am I ever going to do this love God and love other people thing? And what you have to understand is that um, you have an example in Christ. He is the hero to emulate. And you set your eyes upon him, you fix your gaze upon him so that you orient your entire being upon Christ, his life, and his work. And you look to that and, and, and you, you see that. And the more you do that, the more your affections are stirred to love him. This is why like every week when we come to, to church, we take communion and we reflect on the gospel because we are supposed to look at that and have a, it stirs our affections, it changes us. Because you look to what Jesus did, and if you, if you do this seriously, it, it, it'll get you. Because in one sense, you can say, love God more, love God more, love God more. That's not working, love God more. But when you look at the, his story, it changes you. You read the Gospels again and again and again, you hear the Gospel again and again and again. You, you reflect on this idea that the King of Kings died on your behalf and he died a horrific death. No one else, no one else died on a cross for you. No one, and, and it's like the disciples, when they say, who else do we have but you? Where else do we have to go? When, and hopefully it's a long, long time from now, but when you're on the last day of your life and the, the last breaths in your lung are fleeting from you, you have no one else to hope in but Christ and Christ alone. Who have you to turn to? Who else laid down their life? Who else died on a cross to save his enemies? And you look at what he's done and you have it stir your, your affections and you say, Lord, I love you. I love you, Lord. I know what you did for me. I didn't deserve it. I love you, Lord. And what happens is the more you begin to love God, something else begins to happen. The more you'll be able to love on the horizontal plane. The more you love in the vertical, the more love will manifest in the horizontal because... Human beings are made in his image. So how can you not grow in your love for those who bear the image of the one you love? And you fix your eyes, you say, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord. And all of a sudden, the more you love God, the easier it'll become to love other people. And so it's this, this weird dynamic where you're growing in love for God and love for people and your love for God fuels your love for people and the easier it becomes to love people. And so it starts by focusing on what Christ did for you. The great mistake of our culture that we think we could do the horizontal without the vertical. It doesn't work that way. You have to invent new, subjective, fading, fleeting, broken definitions of love to do so. It's love for God that produces love for his images. And then in turn, it fuels. And then, now what are you doing? you're walking in a different way. It's that different mode of being. It's no longer don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, which you shouldn't do those things. Don't hear me saying those things aren't important. But the framework by which you operate is how can I love like my Lord did, how Christ did, how Jesus did, and it changes you. So last week we talked about becoming more Christ-like, and this is an extension of that. You become more Christ-like, you love you love your heavenly father and you love the images. And it begins with love of God. 
And so every week we have the amazing opportunity to come and take communion where no matter what's gone on in your week, no matter you're in a good time of life, a bad time in life, you're stressed out or you're on vacation, we take time and we reflect on the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus commands us, you remember this. And so by remembering this weekly, it's a way for us to put into practice the idea of setting our eyes on the vertical so that we can remember what God did. Jesus is at the top of the vertical line. He is king of kings and lord of lords. There is no one higher than him. There is no first command for Jesus to go, I'm gonna love the person higher than me. He is God in the flesh, king of kings, lord of lords. And so what does that person do? The one who is at the top of the vertical comes down and lays his life down for us. And as we look at what he did for us, we in turn are able to put him in his proper place. King of kings, Lord of lords. And we can then fulfill the first command. We shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and give to him of your entire being. And then that comes down and will manifest to the world. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given to you. No one takes it from him. He lays it down of his own will. Why? To love the images, to love you, to love me. And so Lord, we remember and we set our affections upon you today. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant, his blood shed on our behalf. And we say here that when we take this, we are pledging our allegiance to be faithful to Jesus and to proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. So Lord, it is your love, your sacrifice, your death that inspire us, that give us the fuel for faithfulness. And so may we continue to walk in faithfulness to you. And Father, as we close, we thank you for the work of your Son, for the work of your Spirit, that your Son would lay down his life to save us, and that in turn, the Son would send his Spirit to empower us, inspire us, and fuel us for life here on earth. May we be faithful to you in all that we do, and may we walk in the great command to love you and to love others. May the people of this church be known in our community, in our relationships, in every interaction that we have, that we are examples of what that love looks like. We commit ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.